Hi there, and welcome to the Click IQ Academy podcast. The Click IQ Academy is a learning and resources hub for recruiters, shaping the future and featuring insights from the sharpest minds in the industry. I'm Alan Walker. In this episode, I talk to Theo Smith, Recruitment Manager for NICE, the National Institute for Health and Care Excellence. We discuss neurodiversity, how we became a champion of it, why employers need to take it seriously, and what the challenges are they'll need to overcome to hire and retain neurodiverse talent. Hi Theo, how are you? Hi, I'm great, Alan. How are you? I'm excellent, thank you. So for those that those that don't know you, Theo, those that haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, can you tell us a little bit about who it is you are and what it is you do? Yeah, of course. So my name is Theo Smith. I work for NICE, the National Institute of Health and Care Excellence. We provide evidence-based research into the health sector, uh, and I'm a neurodiversity advocate, and I consider myself neurodifferent, neurodiverse. Okay, okay. So the topic today, clearly we're going to be chatting about neurodiversity. Why, beyond the fact that you yourself are neurodiverse, why is this topic so important to you? Well, because of my experiences growing up and, and the challenges that I faced as a young person, I'm trying to manoeuvre my way through education system that's not fit for purpose when we consider those who think and act differently. Uh, that experience has led me to, to struggle to identify the right types of career opportunities to be successful in, in certain aspects of my life. However, in other aspects, I've been revered for some of the work that I've done, for some of my accomplishments. So I could never quite understand it growing up how On the one hand, I could be told I'm brilliant, and on the other hand, I could be told I'm disruptive, uh, I'm not clever, and I'm not going to amount to anything. So that really empowered me to think about how I can help others and support others, but really how I can help organisations think differently about those who are neurodiverse. Uh, Because ultimately, what's happening is we have a lot of young people who are not succeeding in life who are ending up, uh, whether it be in trouble, in prison, um, or without work. Uh, And I I don't feel it's fair. And I I feel there's a real opportunity for me as an individual to make a difference where academia, where the education system, for a variety of reasons, is really struggling. So that's kind of empowered me and made me want to, you know, uh, make, make a difference in the world of work. Okay, that that makes absolute sense. And um, just for just for clarity, I know you reasonably well. We've we've, we've been friends for a while now. Uh, but you've you've not known about your neurodiversity forever, have you? And not even actually for all that long. You've suspected it, but it, it hasn't been that clear to you. So that's right. So there's two elements to it. So the thing is, for me, is I found out I was dyslexic at 21 years of age. So I failed at school. Um, I came out with barely any qualifications. I didn't sit most of my exams. I think I sat about six GCSEs in the end. Um, I got into a lot of trouble. Um, I struggled for a variety of reasons. I won't bore people with with what they were. Um, But I I guess I I put myself on a knife's edge um, often, and I put myself at a lot of risk. Now I can understand why I I put myself in those situations, because I'm highly impulsive, and and that can be a benefit to organisations. But at the time, it wasn't really a benefit to me in my life, and it, and it put me at a lot of risk. So, uh, I, but I was intelligent. I had some level of, of you know, acumen, some uh, ability about me um, that allowed me to be successful in some other areas, uh, specifically around 
um, theatre and music, um, which were of real interest to me. So when it came to the opportunity to think about what I'm going to do with my life at 21, I, I applied for university as a mature student with no qualifications. And I got in, but I, I couldn't get funded as a mature student. So I went and camped outside the council offices of Barry because they said I was too young to go in as a mature student. And therefore, I couldn't get funded in the way that I needed. And I camped then until they, they agreed to fund me. And, and that got me into university. Um, it was at that point that my life changed significantly. Um, and it's at that point that I found out that I was dyslexic. So this is the first part of the, uh, the neurodiverse story. Uh, I went to university. It was, a, it was a drama course. And within the first week of being there, luckily, I was in a course in Manchester surrounded by people um, from backgrounds that, that were similar to mine. And there was somebody who did a talk around dyslexia. And they were telling us around their experience of being dyslexic. And at the end of it, they went, does that resonate with anybody? And around half of the room put their hand up. So this says something around the types of people who go into creative industries, right? Uh, and the types of people who go into academic institutes that are perhaps uh, more accepting of those who've not been as successful in academia as others. Mm. So we're talking about 50% of the room. And then at that point, I realized I was dyslexic. So... <laughs> That, that opened my eyes and mind to a lot of things and made me feel a bit happier about myself, that maybe I wasn't stupid and that there were other impacting factors that had affected my ability to be successful at school and pass exams. But it's not really until all these years later, that, uh, within the last year and a half since I joined NICE, um, and NICE provides the evidence-based research in this area for how you should be treated if you go to your local GP. So that's partly why I've gone on this journey, but mm. also I watched a wonderful program, I think by, uh, on the television, ADHD and me. And that was a light bulb moment where I thought, oh, hang on a minute. My dyslexia is probably a smaller part of what's impacting me. Um, it's actually the ADHD or, or I, I still don't know. I'm going on that journey to identify that, but it's that element that I think makes life a bit more of a challenge for me in the current built environment, the system that we work within. And then as part of a resourcing leaders 100 event that I was invited to, I saw somebody talk about neurodiversity in the workplace. And the, the big thing for me, Alan, the big light bulb moment for me was that I realized the idea of neurodiversity meant that there's around 15% of the population whose brains actually work differently mm. you know if we think around dyslexics it's more of the right side of the brain is engaged and working you know more of that kind of creative side the ability to communicate really well um, but but you can actually be more than one which honestly my mind exploded and it's <laughs> just almost at the right time i thought ah so being being potentially adhd and being dyslexic and combining those together that provides me with a whole different challenge to somebody who's just dyslexic, right? And it's the same if you think around somebody who has Asperger's, right? So everyone's going, oh, somebody with Asperger's, they're not going to look at you. They don't like light and sound. They're very introverted. Well, they may be, but actually I've met plenty of, I've met plenty of uh, people with Asperger's, with autism, um, who, are on, who don't show that uh, example of being uh, introverted yes they may be affected by light and sound and not look directly at you but actually they can come across quite 
uh, confident mm. and they can communicate really strongly, dependent on the environment and the situation they're in. And that's what neurodiversity really did for me. It, it said to me that we are all different, every single one of us, we're all diverse, but there's around 15% of the population whose brains think differently and it's a normal part of human evolution. We needed these people. We needed Alan Chorin, you know, to go on that journey to start, um, you know, the, the exploration into artificial intelligence and, uh, and the computers that we use today has come from that journey. And it comes from great minds like Alan Chorin. You know, it comes from uh, other great minds like Bill Gates, uh, you know, who are neurodiverse, who are neurodifferent. And they've done incredible mm. things. And, and we have lots of these people, and they're not all geniuses. They're not all people who are going to create Microsoft or, or artificial intelligence or computers. But they're still people who can offer incredible value to our organization. So, Alan, that, that's the reason why I'm on this journey now. One, it's kind of uh, self-fulfilling. Um, it, it helps me as an individual deal with some of these challenges and my family. And, you know, this is hereditary. So this is why it's so important to me. And this is why I've started on this journey of exploration. Excellent. So you talked very early on there. Thank you for sharing your own kind of personal experience. I think it's so important that somebody who's, who is throwing themselves into this area actually has got that, that personal experience to, to, to fall back on and, and relay and reflect on and understand how other people are, are going through um, their life and their professional career, et cetera, tackling some of the challenges. How how are you doing what you're doing? How are you being an advocate? What are some of the things you're doing um, to get out there and, and raise the uh, awareness of the topic of neurodiversity? So I've been a member of a group, the RR100, which has helped me significantly because they've been able to bring um, a variety of different voices to the table so that you can ask, start to understand what other organizations are doing. And that was one of the challenges that I found, Alan, was that you can't find enough information out there about what others are doing. Everybody's talking about neurodiversity. You know, Google Trends shows that neurodiversity as a search term is going through the roof. However, it's still really difficult to know what is going on. So, so that really helped me, first of all, because I started to have a peer group, a network of people I could talk to about it. And and what I found is that there is stuff being done on this, Alan. Some organizations are doing it in a bigger way. You know, you can look at what Heathrow have just done recently with putting umbrellas in the sky um, so that when you go to Heathrow and you have thousands upon thousands of people going through, there's umbrellas all in the sky at Heathrow Airport to represent neurodiversity. And that is to help people understand, you know, it's an umbrella term and it's overarching and that it covers, you know, ADHD, dyslexia, dyspraxia, autism, Tourette's syndrome. Uh, and those people who identify with those uh, think and act differently. So it's those types of things that, that Heathrow are doing and the work that Transport for London do. And even Auto Trader, you know, they're just doing simple pieces of work around should they be clapping within, a, uh, within the environment? You know, where you've got a large group of people, mm. where you may have a lot of people who are autistic. Should you be clapping that it's a really loud intense noise when you may have a high proportion of people who are affected by uh, light and sound we provide the evidence-based research on it but that is different to uh, looking at your workforce and having a conversation with them around how it's impacting them you know one is around diagnosis and around treatment um, and the other is around you know your working world how you how you deal with life and people and your working environment so when I went into NICE, I asked the question, 
uh, via a blog, an internal blog, uh, you know, uh, people interested in a subject. And then I did a lunch and learn session whereby people could come and learn about my interest, my experience and why I'm on this journey. And you know what, Alan? I was absolutely thrown back by the amount of people who raised their hand. So it wasn't just around raising their hand to say, I identify as being neurodiverse or ADHD or dyslexia or whatever it may be. They actually put their hand up to go, my brother, my cousin, my mum, my dad, I think I may be, or just, this is great and I want to support and be a part of it. And that was the that was kind of the energy and the fuel that I needed to make me go, this is something that matters. Too many people raise their hands to say, this this is important to me. And sometimes, Alan, it's not just around the working environment, it's around the personal environment. So it's, wow, I've had all these years with my brother who's just found out he's autistic. You know, we knew in some way, shape or form, deep down, but now we've had a diagnosis or uh, you know, he's been able to understand more about himself or whatever it may be. Or the other element to it is kids. You know, I come from, uh, my mum's from a big Irish family. We have, we have representatives within that family who are neurodiverse in a variety of ways. And I'm not saying that my family members are all dyslexic, ADHD, they're not. I have family members who are ADHD and some need uh, a lot of support. Uh, I have some who are autistic. Uh, and I have some who are dyslexic. So that just goes to show you kind of, if we think around the paradigm, you know, the complexity mm. of, of neurodiversity. It's not simple in the sense that you cannot just label somebody. You can't go, they are dyslexic. Now I'm going to stick that label uh, on their head. And the minute they tell me, uh, I'm going to now think of all the things that I associate mm. with that individual. Absolutely not. We are individuals. We have other impacting factors that affect our lives. So this is what I've been trying to explore, Alan, and I've been trying to explore it in a variety of ways. I've been trying to create content. So, you know, I, I, I write content for Chat Talent, as you know, um, uh, which has really helped me because that's got me out to a, a really engaged audience um, where some great feedbacks come back. I will write for organizations where I think it's relevant. And where I think it's going to add value. And I'll speak at events, which I've been doing recently. Uh, and I also started a podcast. And the reason for starting that podcast was it was selfish, really, Alan. It was so that I could uh, share the story with the world, but also the selfish part. I could hear these stories for myself uh, in a really simple way. Because what better way to say to people, you know, I want to learn about neurodiversity. I want to learn about what you're doing within your organization. But let's not just pick up the phone and have a chat. Let's record it and let's share it with yeah. the world. <laughs> and that's exactly what I've been doing as part of my journey. It's that exploration of other people's experiences, what's impacting them, what's important to them, and how we can then do something about that, actionable, tangible things. Excellent. Clearly, your your interest in it is both personal, but it's also professional. And why is it important that employers understand neurodiversity? And I guess more importantly, start to look at neurodiverse talent when hiring. So I've just done a podcast with somebody called Claire Corey. Now, Claire is an account director at LinkedIn. And through speaking with Claire, I was able to understand how she feels, her personally, that her dyslexia is a superpower. Right? And she gave a really good description and explanation of why that is. 
But even better than that, Alan, her manager, Chris, did a video with me telling me why he thinks Claire's uh, exceptional abilities within that working environment is directly correlated with her dyslexia. And he describes why, you know, her ability to communicate, her drive, her passion and commitment, he feels is beyond what you would see within another person who perhaps is not neurodiverse. So what organizations need to do is realize that people who think and act differently, and we've already looked at this across DNI, right? We say somebody from a cultural different mm. background, from a, a different religious viewpoint, or whatever it may be, you know, uh, McKinsey, there's reports now to show there is actual data to back up that diverse teams increase performance. So we, we've got to think around diverse minds as well. And that's what organizations need to think about. On the one hand, it is the right thing to do. So just do it. But if that's not going to make them do it, um, it technology firms, smaller organizations that are digitally focused, right? You're already full and you're already neurodiverse. You look around your offices, you'll already have people who think and act differently, who may be neurodiverse, because they will have naturally found themselves, if they're autistic, perhaps in roles as developers, as testers, or um, you know, as data analysts, or whatever it may be. So or you've got these tech firms now, they're accidentally becoming the places for those who are neurodiverse. But what they've not done is they've not given any consideration. So the funny thing is, Alan, um, they, they, they're looking around the office going, wow, we're really different. <laughs> But I, I don't <laughs> quite know why. I, I, and that's why there's a lot of search terms on Google, probably people going, you know, well, I, I, I like, what is neurodiversity? I, I, I've heard it. I've got lots of odd people. And let's be honest, that's how people perceive it. I've got odd people, you know, they're quiet or they don't like light or sound or they always want to wear these, these earphones or they don't want to come into meetings um, or, they, or they're too verbose. They talk too much. I can't shut them up. <laughs> yeah, well, you know it well with me, Alan, so we'll, we'll say no more on that. Uh, the, the reality is organizations need to think about it because either it's already happening within an organization and 10% of the population is likely to be dyslexic, so one in 10 people. So therefore, it's likely that it's already happening. But the other thing is these people, and Claire Corey's example is brilliant with Chris, is he is saying that she is an incredible salesperson within that organization because of her dyslexia, right? Not enough mm -hmm. managers are able to do that. Because what they tend to do, Alan, is they tend to focus on the negatives. And Claire said it herself. If she had have walked into an interview early on in her career and said, hi, I'm Claire. I'm, you know, here's my skills and experience. By the way, I'm dyslexic. And somebody came up against her who was quite similar, and this happens often, mm -hmm. you know, um, we have similar experiences to others, and you're sat there as a manager thinking, well, I've got two people, one's dyslexic, so what does that mean? Well, I don't really understand it, but that means they're bad spelling, um, you know, they're going to make loads of mistakes, they're, uh, you know, they can't read properly, blah, 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 against this other person who is, and you see this in job descriptions all the time, and it infuriates me, um, you know, well-organized, um, you know, structured, uh, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but the reality is, Alan, most of these roles that have that within the job description person specification, they don't need that. Hmm. We've got technology. Technology makes me organized. The fact I'm so nervous about putting a spelling mistake in my content and about writing stuff that doesn't sound good, 
I reread stuff four or five times. I'm obsessed about this stuff. And maybe that's the ADHD in me that, you know, <laughs> is coming through. But that's what we need to understand. And that's why neurodiversity is really important uh, because we are, there are other impacting factors that make us successful and make us powerful within an organization. And, and we need to accept that. And if we keep interviewing people and we keep uh, looking at them in this singular way, we're going to miss out on, honestly, incredible talent. Uh, and there's now plenty of people who are willing to put their hand up and go, yeah, you know what? I've got this person who's got ADHD and like, they just go and go and go. They've like, you know, Duracell batteries mm. pumped up times 10. Um, we've just got to angle them and direct them a bit, you know, to make sure they don't keep on going off in the wrong direction. <laughs> and, and these are the things we need to consider. I think um, what on your point earlier um, about your ability to talk and to keep talking um, actually it makes it really easy as a podcast host because I can just wind you up and let you crack <laughs> on. <laughs> um, just one kind of one final question, and um, feel free just to talk forever and to answer this. But uh, what area, <laughs> what kind of challenges will an employer face when it comes to employing? neurodiverse talent what kind of adjustments might they have to make and consider so they've made the decision they've been brave they know someone's neurodiverse they're going to hire that person and i know the raft of differences across that neurodiverse spectrum are huge but what things will they at least have to think about maybe pick on a couple of particular areas of neurodiversity maybe dyslexia and adhd as an example so first things first everyone is an individual everyone is different Right? That's the first most important point. I know I've just said it, but I'm saying it again, because I think that's the mistake. Every organization, every individual, no matter how uh, no matter how they're trying to do something in the right way, no matter how positive they are around trying to encourage somebody who thinks differently within their organization, they fall into the same trap. So they bring somebody in, they go, yes, we want somebody who's autistic. But then when that person has basic requirements, right, simple adjustments like light or sound, they need noise reduction earphones, or perhaps they don't like attending meetings because they find them really difficult, um, uh, or these other impacting factors. The manager, because maybe his CEO has said, hey, I've heard this great talker. Hey, I saw Theo, and he's really great about neurodiversity. We're going to implement it within our organization. And then, like, go hire somebody who's autistic, right? Because that's going to be great. What what that manager, hiring manager, is not doing then is they're not thinking about the individual. What they're thinking about, okay, let's find somebody who's autistic and then we'll employ them and I'm sure they'll be like Mm. a superhero. Well, no, because we all have individual needs. So there's a couple of examples I can give here specifically around autism. There's an organization, an energy company, uh, in the northwest, I don't see who they are, but ultimately they they it, it was publicised. This so you can go and find it online. But they hired somebody with good intention who was autistic into a team. Even the manager, I think, initially had good intentions. However, when that individual started to make requests for reasonable adjustments, and most of these reasonable adjustments are simple, like is there a space I can go to if I'm finding it too much? I have sensory overload, which can happen. You know, it's just too much for me. I need to go and get 10 minutes away from everyone. Imagine a migraine, maybe it's a way to describe it to somebody who doesn't understand um, Hmm. being autistic. Imagine a migraine where you've got visual order, um, which not many people have, but lots of people have headaches or migraines. You need to go and find somewhere darkened and quiet, 
right, just to allow the migraine to, to reduce its impact or the headache or whatever it may be, or the stress or the anxiety, right? Now, just times 10 that, times that by a thousand, times that by a million, right? Now we're starting to get to how that individual is feeling within that environment. So when they're asking to go to a quiet room or to go and sit in their car in the car park or whatever it may be, right, we have to really think like that's a reasonable adjustment that we can make for that mm. individual to go and spend some time away. Or do we go, in this instance, you know, it's too difficult. They're, they're disrupting the team. I can't let every, I can't let all the team go and do it. But a lot of people are gone for cigarette breaks. People go and make tea when they want. Mm. But when somebody wants to go and get a quiet five, ten minutes, like it becomes a big deal. So that's just one example. But what you've got is maybe, there may be 20 of these examples that are slightly different. And for me, they're the reasonable adjustments. They're the simple things we can make for an individual. And that's any individual, right? Any individual, if they need to go and find a quiet space, mm. why can't they? Why don't we facilitate and support that within an organization? So where this energy company uh, got unstuck is when their own GP spoke to the, uh, the employee, they felt that the adjustments were reasonable. And when this got to court, the GP had to stand up. And this is the organization's GP. And they had to say, yeah, I, I feel that the they were reasonable adjustments. Mm. Anyway, the this person with autism won the case. So that's a scare story, Alan. It's it's real. It happens. What I don't want is people to now go, oh, right, I'm never going to hire somebody who's autistic because that's going to cause me problems, potential problems. And the reality is we've got over 80% of people with autism are not in full-time work. That is an issue. And we need to resolve it. So, and partly it will be through this fear, right? But what we need to do is we need to speak to the individual very early on and understand their needs. That is day one, that individual walks through the door, right? We need to know how we're going to help them. So the, another thing that I heard recently was, uh, you know, they were, they were disrupting the team, this person who was autistic, because they kept emailing everybody, telling them that they were um, depressed, that, um, you know, that they were unhappy and that they, I, I don't know the full um, story around it, but the, but the, you know, they were in a desperate place mm. in their life uh, and seriously unhappy. Right Now the problem is there, what happens then tends to happen is that gets wrapped up in the autism, right? So what they say is, Oh, I, I don't know whether I can hire somebody who's autistic again, because they were disrupting all the team every five minutes via messenger saying that, you know, they were really upset and, and in distress. I'm thinking, hang on a minute. What we're talking about is mental health, right? So I, we should be supporting this individual from that perspective. Yeah. This, is, this person isn't in distress because they are autistic. This person is in distress because uh, they're having challenges around mental yeah. health, right? Now, it may well be that they were bullied all through their school life. It may well be that they've never been in a work environment. It may well be that they had a really poor upbringing, right? And they are autistic, right? You put those things together, that is complex needs that we need to think about. And that's every individual. Any individual that comes into your organization may have had a tough upbringing, may have had really bad experiences, may be in distress, right? We don't wrap that up in anything else, or we shouldn't. We need to look at that as individual needs. At that moment, how can we help that individual with what they're telling us? And that is a crisis point for that individual. So 
what I say to uh, organizations out there is if you want to hire somebody who is neurodifferent, right, forget about labeling them, forget about insisting that they need to go and get diagnosis if they've not already. That can help because sometimes it can help the individual understand themselves. Sometimes they don't, Alan. Sometimes they're 40, 50 years of age and they never knew they were autistic, although everyone else knew they were different. They never knew they were autistic. You don't need to get them to get a diagnosis unless that's what they want to do. But you do need to understand their individual needs, their life journey, how, you know, what they're willing to share, how you can help them. And really think, is that individual being difficult, which is the energy company, which is what they thought? They thought, I've got somebody who's being difficult and I don't like it. Therefore, I'm not going to be making these reasonable adjustments because actually I think they're a pain. And that is just an, a, an immediate emotional response that we all make as human beings. So that is not against this individual. We, like We all do it. We all have biases. But we need to look ourselves in the mirror. Organizations need to look at themselves in the mirror and think, how can we support individual needs? So for me, that's the important thing, whether it's dyslexia, whether it's ADHD, whether it's autism. It's when somebody sits in front of us, how can we facilitate and support them? And how can we support their individual needs and their strengths because if you bring superman into your organization and you insist they work with kryptonite he is gonna go nuts right <laughs> he's gonna go crazy and you're all gonna be going what is wrong with superman he's insane yeah but he looked like he was gonna be brilliant like an interview he could do all these wonderful things but he's crazy <laughs> no he's not crazy you're forcing him to work with things that he finds really difficult that, that is putting him in a in a really uh, horrible place. And what you do is because he, he is pushing against this, as human beings, what do we do within organizations? We push him even further. Ah, this Superman's being difficult, so I'm going to make him work with just kryptonite because I, I've had enough of him. I'm just, he's just going to be the only one who works with kryptonite because all the other team members are saying they're frustrating him. So we do this time and time again. So organizations need to think about that. But what I would say is, if we just put that to one side, uh, and that's around attraction and assessment, I would bring people into the organizations. Look within your company, right? They're already there. People are already there who are neurodifferent. Like, write a blog about it. Get somebody who is confident, who's in a role uh, of responsibility, who is comfortable about themselves and where they're at. Like myself, like Claire Corey, and there's plenty of other examples. You might not get Richard Branston in, but, you know, get somebody within your organization who's willing to say, hey, I'm dyslexic. Hey, I'm autistic. And you know what? It's okay. And I'm all right with it. And this is my story. And this is my journey. And you know what? This is how I, how I live within this environment. And it doesn't have to be all rosy, right? This individual should be supported and facilitated to say, I actually find this office a bit difficult sometimes. The open plan office element to it, I find a bit difficult. I do think we need some more spaces that we can go to. We've not got them yet, but actually, I love the work that I do. And actually, my boss is really supportive. And actually, you know what? We're a good organization, and I'm proud to work for this organization. But if we think around neurodiversity and around encouraging more people to work for us, these are the things I think we need to do, because that's really powerful, Alan. Because what you're then doing, and this is, you, you look across D&I, diversity and inclusion and belonging, you know, more broadly, this is what it's about, right? It's it's facilitating and supporting those people uh, to have a voice and through that voice being able to directly impact 
that environment in a positive way because the CEO it is, isn't necessarily going to do it. Um, the board aren't necessarily going to do it. They might back it, but they don't really know operationally how to deliver it. What we need to do is we need to uh, give the platform to those people who are already within the organization and to support them at actually making real world difference, operational difference, implementing things that don't have to be complex. And sometimes it's just around bringing the subject up to the surface so those managers who want to do the right thing but unfortunately keep doing the wrong thing are then enabled to fully understand it and are empowered to make the right decisions excellent theo thank you so much for that on that note and um the i think the point around treating people as individuals is the big key takeaway and um and the bit about superman and kryptonite as well i think put those two things together and um you've got really <laughs> a, a, an understanding of how to treat people who who may be neurodiverse. Um, thanks so much for everything. Absolute gold, Theo. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Well, more accurately listening to you. And um, I've had an absolute ball. Thank you. <laughs> Love everything you do, Alan. Thanks very much. And that brings us to the end of this podcast. Big thanks to Theo for sharing his experience with neurodiversity. And a big thanks to you for listening. Everything we've discussed today can be found at Academy clickiq.co.uk and any questions or feedback can be sent to hello at clickiq.co.uk